Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Rob Fitzpatrick. Uh, Rob is the author of three practical handbooks to what he's learned along the way. Uh, He's ran multiple businesses and wrote about those uh, in his book, The Mom Test. This is a book about entrepreneurship and customer development. This is actually how I heard of Rob. Originally, um, a friend recommended uh, that book to me, and then we started using this for our product development at self-publishing school. Um, so really great book. Uh, another book called the, Work- the Workshop Survival Guide. This is about education design and facilitation. Uh, and then lastly, his most recent book, it's called Write Useful Books. Uh, <laughs> it's about designing nonfiction uh, as a recommendable problem-solving product. Um, I've read the book. I loved it. Um, I thought, you know, that was when I realized uh, Rob and I had a lot of uh, kind of similar philosophies about book publishing, book writing, uh, all that stuff. And so I uh, figured I'd bring him on the show uh, <laughs> and let's jam. So Rob, great to have you here. Likewise, I'm excited to be here. So um, take me back to kind of, uh, I guess, your first breakout hit, which is uh, The Mom Test. Um, hmm. Why did you decide to write that book? I'd been building my first business. I, I was a programmer, introverted, technical. The whole team was kind of techie. And we ended up, as often happens, I'm sure you've been through this one, building a business. You suddenly realize you need to start doing some sales and talking to some customers. And there was no one on the team who really, you know, so I, I drew the short straw. And I was reading all these books about sales, you know, all the classics. And I was trying to do what the book said, and I, I thought I was doing it, and it just wasn't working for me. And, and what I realized later is it was a little bit of, of curse of knowledge where these these books were written by salespeople who were so much further ahead than I was that I couldn't understand. They didn't understand my context. And also they were writing that most sales books are written by natural salespeople who are now some of the best in the world. And I didn't want to be the best in the world. I wanted to kind of go from non-functional to functional, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and it was... Anyway, it took me years and that first company ended up failing, even though we had really good investors, we had some good customers, but everything just went too slowly. And I was finally figuring out just at the tail end of that business, how it worked. And so then later I was on an awkward vacation and like, I was like, oh, that was one really useful thing that I took away from that, that, that business. And I had no Wi-Fi. I didn't really want to hang out with the people. The whole thing was just a mess. And uh, so I, I had like a week by myself in a little cabin and a, a blank notebook. So I just uh, longhanded the whole first draft of the book during that week. And it had been bouncing around in my head for a while because I'd been doing it and I've been teaching it to other people. And I didn't think it was going to sell especially well. And I, I thought it was incredibly specific. It's basically like how to do sales as an introverted technical startup founder, like very, very niche, niche within a niche within a niche. Um, now it's gone on to sell 100,000 copies. They teach it all at all of the top five global universities. So it, it's clearly outgrown my original expectations for it. And I think what happened is there was this 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 slice of the audience who who needed to know how to do sales, who needed to know how to talk to to customers, and and just no one had thought to write to them. But at the time, I was like, if this saves one person like me from the pain that I just went through and the business failure I just went through, then you know that's a that's a win. And mm. I got it started by I, I took responsibility for marketing the first seven hundred or eight hundred copies myself, some through blogging, some through event giveaways, 
And then after that, I stopped and I was like, the book's either going to be recommendable or it's not. And that's also why I chose such a weird topic or it's such a weird uh, title. It's called the mom test for around like un unconditional support is the way the, the metaphor is used. But I figured no one's ever going to see this on a bookstore and randomly impulse buy it. it. It's a book that solves a specific problem for a specific person at a specific time. So I decided to bet all in on the recommendation loop. And that's the way I designed the book. That's the way I wrote it. And that's why I was happy to choose a goofy name because I figured people would be told about it specifically. They wouldn't just discover it. And that's more or less been true. Although you notice I've chosen more descriptive titles for my future books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lesson learned, I guess, since then. Um, so uh, kind of two-part question to, to build on that. Um, and you talk about this in, in, uh, in Write Useful Books about your, your marketing plan for that book. But how did you market that book originally? And then talk to us about the building. You, you, you kind of casually mentioned building in a recommendation loop in, yeah. in that book. How'd you do that as well? So let me take this backwards because what, when I'm designing a book or thinking about whether I want to, because writing a book takes a long time, right? <laughs> you don't want to go and the expected outcome for most books is not good. So when I was thinking about committing this chunk of time, uh, there was a quote from Seth Godin that really stuck with me, where he said that 90% of the publishing industry's profits is from back catalog classics that have been out for more than six months. Uh, so they represent that category of books is 90% of the profits, but only 2% of the marketing expense. And I was like, wow, you know, and this type of book, it doesn't need to be actively marketed. It grows through word of mouth and it lasts for many years. Whereas if you look at the average New York Times nonfiction bestseller, um, on average, they peak within 12 weeks, they lose 95% of their peak sales within the year, and they never recover. So I was like, well, if I'm going to invest the time in writing a book, I'm, I'm not about getting it done faster, I'm about doing it right. And I'm like, I want to spend as much time as it needs. But that's only worth doing if I have a fair shot at being one of these back catalog classics that can grow through through word of mouth. Because also, you don't want to be actively marketing your books forever, you have to do it for a while. But at a certain point, you want recommendations to take over because books are ultimately a low cost, undifferentiated product. So they're really hard to actively market at a profit. Like, right? You're at, so people use platforms, they use PR waves. And then the third strong option is recommendability, which that's what I chose because it suited my product design impulses. And so I was like, how does a recommendation loop work? And I, I saw two different types of recommendations. One was what I would call a PR blitz, where everyone starts reading it because it seems like everyone's reading it. Uh, this happened in nonfiction to like why we sleep and lean in, but you'll notice you haven't heard about either of those books in years. So everyone's talking about it for three months and then it, it disappears like any other, you know, peak and decline. Whereas there's another type where it, it seems to get triggered by someone verbalizing a problem. Like, man, I have to do sales for my company and it sucks. Like, or I, I've read all these sales books and they are useless. Or like customers keep like telling me they want this thing and then they don't actually use it. And then people are like, oh, you need to read this book. It's called The Mom Test. That's the answer to that problem. And so that's like a someone has a problem in their life. And it could be like you've just moved to a new city or a new job and like you're lonely and disoriented. And you verbalize that to a coach, a mentor, a colleague, a teacher, a parent, whoever. And that person goes, oh, you got to read this book. Or they might say you should go to this event or you should buy, download this phone app. There's a bunch of different solutions for these problems, but books are one of them. And so I was like, okay, so I need to identify a problem that's sharp enough that people will verbalize their suffering to it. Not just like, I'm bored, but like, ah, how do I do this? This sucks, I need a solution. And, and then I need to write a book that is the best in class solution to that product problem. 
And if those two things are true, then you get a recommendation loop. And, and then as long as when you're writing the book, you want to avoid dating it. So you don't want to anchor too hard on temporary like news trends or temporary business trends or temporary technology. All technology is temporary. So I tried to leave that out and just talk about the fundamentals, even if it would have been a good chapter that readers would have liked at the time, because then it's like, are they still going to like it in 10 years? That first book's now been out for 10 years and it's selling better than ever. Mm. So that was how I thought about the recommendation loop. And I've done that for all my books. And I've written a couple manuscripts that I ended up throwing away because I realized they did not have a strong enough recommendation loop. Hmm. And I didn't want to build an author platform. So I was like, well, without the recommendation loop, I don't even need to bother. So that's hmm. where it starts for me. And then if you have that in place and if you believe it's true, and this is not completely a gamble because you get really strong signals that your recommendation loop is working during beta reading. And, and so I look for those signals during beta reading and I keep refining it until I'm pretty confident that the recommendation loop is working. So I feel by the time I'm publishing, I'm like 90, 95% sure that the book is going to succeed and that it's going to mm. keep succeeding for a decade because I haven't stopped beta reading and iteration until I've gotten those signals. And those are qualitative, quantitative and observational. You, you have to do follow ups with your readers to see if they've actually added your stuff to their life. Anyway, mm. so if you believe all that, and if you think you can do that for your book, which you know you can, it, it takes work, but it's super doable, um, then it really changes marketing. And the way I think, it, like <laughs> the, the little quote I like is, the point of marketing is to stop needing to do it. Mm. You have to do just enough marketing to create, I call it a seed audience. For me, it's a thousand readers. So I do marketing however I can, however scrappy, however inefficient, whatever's available to me, to get those first thousand copies into the hands of perfect readers. These can't just be random people. They need to be actually the people who want to read your book. Um, and then at that point, I sort of back off, in, in, or at least I did for my first two books, because I said the book is now either going to grow or fade on its own merits. Uh, with this third book, I'm also building a larger business on top of it. we got the author's community, software for beta reading, et cetera. So it makes sense for me to continue pushing it to try to accelerate it. So the third book, I've continued marketing well past that, that, that seed audience line, whereas the first two, I, I stopped at that point and let the, let the book do its own thing. Got it. And I guess the differentiation is that there's financial upside beyond the book. Yeah. And also yeah. with the first two books, um, the way I was thinking about them on, on your website, you, you call these legacy books, I think, where, where the book is sort of like, and I, I saw those as, as legacy books, or I think of them as conclusions to a stage in my career. I was kind of done with early stage startup stuff, but I wanted to capture what I had learned before I moved on. I was kind of done. We'd built an education business up to about a million a year. We'd done a lot of good work across Europe. We'd like did a lot for the entrepreneurship ecosystem, but I'd done it for three years and we couldn't find a way to scale or productize. So it was like, yeah, we built ourselves a nice job, but we had some really interesting approaches to workshop design. So I was like, I want to capture that before I move on. So mm -hmm. those I had zero interest in continuing to push and they ended up like doing well. Um, the workshop survival guy got hit pretty hard by COVID, but that still does 3000 to 5,000 a month in royalties. And it's, you mm -hmm. know, pretty stable. Montes now does 15,000 per month in royalties and continues to grow. Uh, so both of those books are, are good, um, but I, it just made no sense to like to push it that much harder, right? Because yeah. it's like, I'm done with this stage of my career. It's boring. Yeah. I don't want to market a book cynically. Uh, yeah. Whereas the, the difference with the business, it's not that we make a lot more money from like a reader becoming a customer because all of our products are super cheap. It's like 20 bucks a month or something. Uh, but the difference is that I'm planning to spend the next five to 10 years in this industry in service to independent nonfiction authors. So oh. since I'm planning to spend five to 10 years, it, it makes sense to do this, you know, this other stuff. That's great. Um, so just, just kind of summarizing key themes that, I, that I've heard is 
um, write books, uh, write books to solve problems that people are verbalizing, and then structuring the book as an answer to that problem. Um, that's yeah. how you build the recommendation loop into your book. Um, and and ideally, of, yeah. you want that promise to be on the cover in either the mm, title or the yep. subtitle. Because yep. and and then when you get into the innards, don't waste the reader's first thirty minutes like yep. telling them your whole life story. Start mm. giving them the solution to what was promised on the cover, right? Well, yeah. and, and that's how you build yeah. reader goodwill and, and keep them engaged, at least for this mm. category of books. Obviously memoirs, yeah. novels, different categories of books work differently. Yeah, that's great. So much alignment, man, and, 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 and the key principles and things that we talk about. Like it, I talk about this in this book, right? It's like the four piece of the best-selling book, pain, promise, or person, mm. pain, promise, price. So the person that you're writing to, what's the pain that they have that they know that they have and what's the promise that you can make? And I think there's just so much overlap between that and mm. what you're saying, which is, and, and it reminds me of pain pills versus vitamins, right? It's, it's speaking to a pain. And if you can insert your book into that pain, that becomes uh, the recommendation loop. Um, and I love uh, some of the other quotes um, that, uh, that you, the point of marketing is to stop doing it or to, to stop needing to do it. Uh, which I think is uh, pretty interesting. So let's um, let's transition a little bit to. I mean, we've already started unpacking unpacking some of the kind of core tenets of uh, the premise of write useful books. But can you maybe just like zoom back out of the big picture um, for people who haven't read that book yet? Yeah. Um, what's the core premise of the book and what it's about? And then there's a couple more things I want to kind of dive specifically in and ask questions about. So the, the core premise, I, I come from a, like a startup and product design background and the, the way product used to get built and still does at a lot of big businesses, they called it waterfall because it's really convenient to plan. You basically spend, we're going to spend three months getting requirements. Then we're going to spend six months building a prototype. And we're going to spend, et cetera. Right. Then we're going to release it for beta testing, which lasts exactly three months. And it's like, and it, but it turns out like often when you're building a product, you get halfway into it and you realize you're building completely the wrong thing or this feature that you spent a month planning doesn't need to be there. And so what, what modern startups are doing and product builders is it's much more iterative and you try to get real customers involved in the process early. And obviously there's tricks to learning because people don't always know what they need and you need, there's some subtlety in this, of course. Um, and so it made sense. And I, I've met other authors who do the same thing. And it sounds like it sounds like you do as well. But it's just applying that same process to books. The way most books are written is equally waterfall. You know, you, you plan it out. Maybe you write a proposal for the publisher. You do the sample chapter. You you lock yourself in a dark room. You write the manuscript. You revise it. You rewrite it. You developmental edit it. You copy edit it. Then you send it out for feedback. And what happens is like at that point, like you're done already. So if it doesn't work for readers, like one, they're probably not even going to tell you. Because they don't want to be like, this whole thing doesn't work for me at all. I think you should start over. Like, no one's going to give you that feedback. Um, and even if they did, like, are you really going to make that call? I know a couple authors who have done it, and they got to that, like, final stage of, of reading. Um, ben Kasnocha, who wrote The Startup of You alongside Reed Hoffman, they, they said this happened to them. They went through the whole waterfall traditional publishing process. They got to the end, and they're, and, and they're like, wow, it doesn't work for, for, for readers. And they had the courage or the strength or the whatever to basically push back on the publishers and say, we need another year. And they just scrapped it and rewrote the thing. But it's very rare that you're going to find an author wow. who will who will do that, right? That's a big yeah. hit. And so the concept in product development is you want to bring the bad news sooner, not so that you can give <laughs> up, but so that you can find a way yeah. around it. That's you great. know, like you're, you're driving at night or you're driving a mountain road and there's like a tree across the road and you can't continue. You don't go like, oh, no, let's go home. You go like, oh, let me backtrack a little bit and find a different path to my destination. 
it sucks, right? It would have been nice if that tree wasn't there, but thank goodness I saw it in time to stop mm -hmm. the car, right? You don't want to close your eyes and try to do that. So like, that's the core concept. And then the tools mm -hmm. for doing this um, early on, uh, I, I, I like scope it out like a product as we already talked about. And then I start doing reader conversations, both listening to them to build reader empathy, to understand where they're at, their worldview, to get back inside the amateur's mind. That's actually the title of my favorite book about chess because the author, um, he followed this approach and he had his students like verbalize their decision-making and thinking as they were playing games of chess with him. And he's like, wow, you understand the game completely differently from how I thought you did. And so he was able to write a really effective chess book speaking to amateurs. And, and so I, I, I like to do that around whatever topic I'm writing about where I'm like, talk me through this. How are you doing this? Where are you stuck? What are you worried about? And then at the same time, I'm starting to do teaching conversations or coaching conversations where I'm basically pretending to be the book and I'm delivering the book's major learning outcomes myself, like one-on-one -on -one coaching, small group workshops. Uh, it can be free. It can be paid. It doesn't matter as long as you're learning what works for the learners. Because um, sometimes finding the right anecdote or the right metaphor or the right ordering or the right level of detail or complexity, how much of the academic theory do you need to include in order for the, it to be actionable? right? These are not obvious questions. And so, and I like to do that when I'm thinking through my table of contents. So even pre-manuscript, if possible, sometimes I get excited and I bang out a manuscript because that's the bit I enjoy, but you know, it mostly has to get thrown away. Um, and, and so I use the, the, the conversations to hone the table of contents. I try to do a really descriptive, detailed table of contents. I want the table of contents to act as an outline of learning outcomes. And then as I start to write up the manuscript, I'm adding uh, word counts next to the learning outcomes because word counts represent reading time. The average reading speed is 250 words per minute. So if you've got a section that's a, a, a pretty unimportant learning outcome and it's 2000 words, you're sort of like, wow. And it's right at the beginning of the book. You're like, wow, I, I'm delaying my readers for eight minutes. That's an eight minute low value speed bump. Do I really want that right at the start of the book? And then you go, okay, do I try to cut that down to a quarter of its size? Do I move it later in the book after I've already built up goodwill? Um, and so as, as I'm writing and revising the manuscript, I'm like thinking through the reader experience, which is then anchored in the reader conversations and teaching I've done. And then as soon as there's um, uh, Marty Kagan, who wrote a bunch of great uh, product books, uh, Inspired was, was his most famous one that have all sold a you know, half million, a million copies apiece. Um, he, his approach is as soon as he gets what he calls like the, the book's core risk or like core idea, core piece of value. That could be one chapter, it could be five chapters, it depends on the book. He starts getting that out for beta reading, first with a trusted expert reviewer, who's like someone who's an industry expert to basically call BS if he got something completely off base, and then to actual readers. Because his theory is like that piece is the critical risk of the book, and if that piece doesn't work and delight people, work for people and delight them, then the rest of the book is pointless. The rest of the book is just like busy work, right? And what do you call, um, what do you, I may have missed it. What are you calling that piece? He, 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 I, I call it like a, the standalone unit of value. He, he calls it like the, the, like the, the book's core thesis or like core Got concept it. or core Got idea. It. Not every book has one of these that you can tuck into a chapter. Sometimes you kind of need the whole manuscript to, to get the core piece of value across. Um, in the workshop survival guide, it could have been the first half of the book. I didn't actually need to wait until I had the, because that book divided cleanly into two parts. So I could have started testing the first part, which was the riskier part. Um, I didn't, I wrote the whole manuscript and that slowed me down a lot because then we had to do all these restructures, revisions, rewrites based on beta reader feedback that were actually unnecessary because I, I, I could have discovered those problems with just half the book. But anyway, you get into beta reading and there the main thing I'm looking for is um, I run beta reading in 
iterations, it's usually two to eight weeks per iteration of beta reading. Um, for my book so far, I've done anywhere from, I got lucky with one and I only had to do two rounds of beta reading. Uh, Write Useful Books took like 10 because it was a pretty difficult topic for me to, to, to put into words. And wow. early on, the iterations are a bit faster because people get stuck on like chapter two and they just stop reading. And a mistake I see a lot of authors make is they then try to call in favors to get people to finish. But the like people giving up is the data. It's showing <laughs> you that like either chapter two was really boring or chapter three is really undesirable. Like that is the data that uh, yeah. you need to fix that, right? You don't yeah. need them to, you don't need to punish them with the rest of a bad manuscript. You're like, oh, there's a problem somewhere around chapter two or three because that's where everyone's giving up. Great. Yeah. Um, that is the purpose of that round of beta reading. So then you go in, you try to debug it, you try to figure out why, use their comments, use your own sense of craft and your own intuition, you know, and, and then you run another round of beta reading. And now you're like, ooh, people are getting up to chapter four. We're making progress, right? So you don't want to force mm. people through it. You want to see where they get to. Because you want their beta reading experience and their comments to be as close to those of a real reader as you can get. Mm. So don't call in favors from your friends. You get no data there. Like, don't yeah. pay an expert. You get no data yeah. there. Like, yes, yes, pay experts for copy editing. Like, absolutely. Like, you yeah. know, but they, they're not your readers. So yeah. anyway, and, and then I do that. And I like to continue the beta reading until most readers are reaching the end. When I follow up with them a couple weeks later, they've actually applied some of the book's concepts to their work or their life. So I know they're getting real value out of it, not just having fun reading it. And at least some of them are asking if they can share the pre-launch manuscript with other people, which is early evidence of a recommendation loop. So if I've got those three things, that shows me that there, there's value. It shows me that it's readable and engaging, and, and it shows me that the recommendation loop is credible. And, and then I'm like, okay, now it's time to polish it. And that's when I start hiring the professionals, the you know the copy editors, the proofreaders. Start worrying about the layout, the typos, like all that stuff. And alongside it, I usually start my pre-launch marketing, my pre-launch seed marketing, at about the second half of beta reading, because then I kind of am sure that I'm going to finish the book. And I'm able to be reasonably accurate about my time horizons. Mm. I once started pre-selling a book when it was still just a table of contents. And it was so embarrassing when I had to like refund everyone and apologize and be like, sorry, I, I couldn't figure out how to make this good enough. Here's your yeah. money back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement. I love um, I, I love the the reader conversations piece and crystallizing mm -hmm. your content through one or one one on one or through group coaching or through workshops or through even creating a, an online curriculum or online course and then using that to inform the table of contents. I think that's brilliant. Um, I think the beta reader process is is really well structured and super super smart. And I love the way it's just fun seeing how your your tech and product iteration brain breaks <laughs> apart this process uh i think it's uh it, it, it's it's really needed and refreshing in an industry where that doesn't often happen uh and so i think that's uh really cool to see 
I want to it's talk, I want, I want to unpack the beta reading process. Cause yeah. I think this is the, reading your book. This is, this is the part where I think I, I think it's maybe the only part where we have differing philosophies. Um, and so I want to get your, your, your kind of why behind this. I think, I think I have always, I've recommended reader conversations, not beta reading. Cause I think beta reading can just totally derail someone. And then they can spend <laughs> years on an unfinished manuscript. Right now. So I think, I think for that reason, I have just said, don't do beta readers unless maybe you're writing fiction. Like don't do beta readers now. And I think you're probably on the other end of the spectrum, which is an in-depth beta reading process. Yeah. Um, it's the most important part of my process. Definitely. So, so walk, so walk me through that. Why is that important and how can people keep from, uh, well, I actually want to backtrack a sec. Cause I, I want to key in on one thing you said, which I think is really important. Now I'll ask the question. So <laughs> I think what you keyed in on is, is, is we talk about this all the time too, is, is don't take advice from people who aren't your target reader. And that can be one of the most dangerous things that you can get uh, is giving yeah. <laughs> your manuscript to people who aren't that target reader. So I love that you mentioned that. But talk to me about why, why is this the most important part of your process and how can people avoid beta reading in into eternity or beta reading into discouraging them from finishing the book yeah it's, it's a good question um the more i found that the more i have taught the topic the less beta reading i need to do because the that tends to give me a, a stronger foundation of like reader understanding, yes. reader yeah. empathy. I already know like the anecdotes, the exercises, the yeah. ordering from 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 workshops. And I'm quite thoughtful about when I teach as well, because, you know, I try to I try to make sure it's a two directional thing, like standing on stage and broadcasting at an audience isn't going to teach you a lot. It's just going to make you more confident, but equally wrong. And if you're in a small group and you really pay attention to where people are confused and you try to understand why it didn't work for them, then you're actually improving. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is why like so many books written by academics are so bad because they, they're like, yeah, I've taught this for years. And it's like, yeah, you're a really bad teacher. Like your students hate you. Like you are failing them and your book is like not improving through this exercise and waste of everyone's time. But anyway, um, so with with the beta reading, that's that's an advantage, right? If you've taught it a lot, you're not going to need to do as much. You will be right more quickly. Your guesses will tend to be more accurate. Um, for getting discouraged, um, there's a couple tools here. One is that it's it's better to hear the bad news now than in an Amazon review. Um, and like secondly, like writing a book is a long journey. Like if you are a handful of criticism away from giving up, then you're probably going to find an excuse to give up at some point anyway. Uh, and but then it does get tough. Like it's super tough, especially with the early iterations where you know they're terrible. You know they're full of problems, but you also, at least for me, like I know they're full of problems, but I, I know I got to put them out there to get the thing into the good shape where it's it's gonna like the 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 core concept of the book, like the valuable knowledge, the valuable idea, is it's like a seed, but you gotta find the fertile soil for it, right? You gotta find the right environment to plant it in, the right way to describe it, the right wrapping to give it. So it's not like you're trying to build your book by committee. You're not going to do what everyone says, but you're trying to discover like, is this going to survive in the harsh, like Amazonian wilds, right? And so I want that. I care about the ideas. Like I would never start a book. I actually made the mistake. I say I would never, but I have. I would never again start a book cynically because I think it's a good business opportunity. I'll only do it if I really care about getting that idea out into the world because I think it has value. And ideally, also, I care about the readers receiving that value because I, I find that that's enough for me to, to spend the time and keep going through the, the tough bits. 
when the bad feedback gets overwhelming, uh, and I can't, like, I find my emotions firing up, or I'm getting defensive, or I want to argue with beta readers. It's like, no, I talked about that in chapter two. It's like, well, yeah, I did, and I'm right. But if this reader is confused, because some readers skim, then other readers will be confused also. And like, this one's being courteous enough to tell me, whereas someone else will just leave me a one-star Amazon review. So I think of that like a bug, like a usability bug in a piece of software, where it's like, yeah, it technically works, but like, it's fiddly, or it's easy to go wrong. So like, why don't I just go and clarify that? Um, so sometimes you have to step away from the manuscript, though, take like a week off and just be like, <laughs> calm down, take a nice little vacation, have a bubble bath, come back to the manuscript in a better state of mind, and, and try to see the negative feedback and in, in the, the spirit in which it is given. And it's also correct in some cases to just ignore certain readers. So with the workshop survival guide, we thought, I still think that the tools we talked about would apply to both uh, freelance facilitators, like workshop facilitators, like ourselves, and then also to school teachers and, and professors and stuff. And so I tried to pull, to be inclusive, I tried to pull anecdotes and examples from all three of those worlds. Woo, I cannot tell you how much these school teachers hated that book. Uh, when I was including anecdotes from their world because they thought that I, I just didn't understand. They thought that I was trivializing their very real challenges, like dealing with a classroom full of kids who don't want to be there is so much more difficult than dealing with a room full of adults who do want to be there. So it, it's true, they have harder obstacles. But anyway, so I got so much negative feedback from like that because I tried to invite beta readers from all three worlds. The university professors were kind of like, um, you're kind of young, I don't care what you think. And they just didn't even bother yelling at me. Like they just stopped reading. Uh, whereas the, the school teachers were, were furious. And so I was like, okay, fine. I went through, I removed every example of school class, school classrooms and university classrooms. And I replaced them all with like workshop, like adult workshop, uh, corporate workshop, whatever. As soon as I launched, I started getting emails from school teachers being like, wow, this book is amazing. There's so many applications to my classroom, right? But I had to realize that like there was no way I was going to, I had to write about a different world and allow them to extract the lessons and position it away from them. And, and that was something that like, I never would have gotten that from yeah. a developmental editor. I never would have gotten that from any number of revisions. And that was like a book saving change. Oh, wow. That's great. That's really great. Uh, it almost, uh, uh, the kind of the, the relationship between reader conversations and the beta reading process, it almost sounds like you view it as like a pie chart where there's 100% that needs to be, get done. <laughs> now, whether that's 60% reader conversations and 40% beta reading or 20% any combination of that, is that kind of how you look at it? Yeah, so you're not going to be able to figure out tone from reader conversations reader conversations, um, and you're not going to be able to figure out like pacing of value. Uh, you can do it. I I'm yeah. finding that now, like now I'm writing my fourth book, and I'm finding that now I'm able to make much better guesses. Like my intuitions are better about what's going to what's going to work and what's not. And so that book only took, um, I still haven't released it. It's only like half written, but I started I did the first round of beta rating on that when it was just 8000 words. Then based on that, I changed it to I added a bit more. I did another round of beta reading when it was like 12,000 words and the, the, the early beta reading manuscript like went semi-viral and I ended up getting like hundreds and hundreds of people just piling into the manuscript, leaving, you know, thousands of comments. Oh, wow. And I was able to start like a little like side business, right? The, the, yeah. Just off of that. And the book hasn't even come out yet. It's like mm. just off the, the beta readers. So that's a case where like my intuitions are getting better. But I couldn't have gotten away with that as a first time author. And I, I, I still want the beta reading to reassure myself that I'm on the right track. Uh, yeah. 
And, and, and then one, one other thing I, I mentioned is like, when you find that there's angry comments or like comments you disagree with, like the, the first question I would ask myself is like, is this person my reader? So at a certain point with the, the school teachers, I decided they weren't my reader. And I just like ignored all of their feedback. Like, and I, obviously I took it on board in the sense that I like removed the, the school classroom examples. Um, but then everything else they said, I'm like, okay, that was the one decision I made, which is they are not my reader. I have removed the, the examples from their world. Everything else they said, I ignored. Um, just hundreds and hundreds of comments, very generously given. They, they invested a ton of time and I'm hugely grateful, but I was like, they're not my readers. Like, it yeah. does not matter at this point what they do yeah. and don't like. Uh, and, and so then I like focused on the people who, who were my readers. And that's an yeah. important exercise as well. You got to think like, where, who is this coming from? And, and like, yeah. it, right? And then, then you make your own call. Yeah, it's a tough but important decision um, that then makes a lot of other decisions easier or unnecessary as you distill the feedback. Um, I want to one more question on writing, and then I want to get in a couple quick questions on um, the marketing process and how you look at that. Um, so uh, a lot of your books are pretty short and succinct. Um, yeah, what's, they're 30,000, 50,000, and 35,000 words, respectively. 30, 50,000, and what was the last one you said? 35. 35. Okay. So all under 50,000 um, for context, for, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, kind of more traditional nonfiction is probably more like 60 to 80,000, sometimes longer if you're getting academic. Um, I, I got publishing offers for the, the mom test and, and they go, yeah, it's a great book. We love it. Uh, we just, you're going to need to add 20,000 words. To, you know. <laughs> and I was like, what, what concepts are missing? And they're like, oh, nothing's missing. Just, you know, add some filler. And I was like, mm, I don't think my readers are going to appreciate that. I don't no, I'll, do just, that. Uh, yeah. I'll do it by myself. Thank you. <laughs> so, so what's the why behind the short books? And then you mentioned that, that uh, the, the mini manuscript that went somewhat viral mm -hmm. starting at 8,000 words. Uh, do, yeah. do your manuscripts typically get longer as the beta reading process goes on and you write short so that people will get through it and then add what's missing? Do they, does it get shorter? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? My previous book started much longer. Workshop Survival Guide early manuscript was 120,000 words and it ended up launching at 50,000. So I removed more than half of its wow. word count during wow. beta reading yeah. and revisions. And that was one of the ways, like I, I said that on our first round of beta reading, no one made it through chapter two. And part of the reason was it was really padded out. It, it had multiple stories making the same point. It was kind of long-winded. It was like, I was trying too hard to prove my credibility instead of just demonstrating it. All the classic blunders. With uh, with mom test, I removed. I think that was probably fifty thousand that I cut down because when I sent that one out for beta readers, <laughs> one dude he didn't leave any inline comments because I, I didn't know how to run a beta reading process at that point. So I just emailed PDFs, and uh, so you know you hear nothing for weeks, and then you get like a thousand comments. But this one dude, he just sent a real short email. He goes, "I think there's a lot of good stuff in this book, but uh, chapters two, three, and four are kind of pretentious, aren't they?" <laughs> and uh, I, I looked back at the manuscript, and I was like, I was like doggone it he's right so i just deleted those three chapters just entirely i didn't even edit them down i just removed them and and so wow. like the book got so much better from that that, that dude saved that that first book so that's what i've done in the past but partly this is that i like putting words down on a blank page that's the stage of the process i enjoy the most so i, I tend to overindulge in the in the drafting with the fourth book the upcoming one which is about outcome oriented communities there I was trying to follow Marty Kagan's approach of like getting the core, like risky thesis or like the core big idea that's differentiated from what other people are saying. Like, where do you disagree with the other thought leaders? Or like, what's the critical piece that people have to buy into for them to get value from the rest of the book? 
And I thought I could do that. It felt like I could do it in 8,000 words. And it was almost like the manifesto. It was kind of like why everyone else is wrong, which is you know, kind of a tough line to walk, especially when I'd only just started doing community stuff. But I was like, oh, let's try to plant this flag, see what happens. And, uh, and that's another reason I wanted to start the beta reading early, because it was very possible that m most of my readers knew more about community than I did at the time. I've learned a little bit since then. But I, I was like, I, I really got to put this out here to figure out if I'm, I'm even like close to something desirable. And, you know, it, it turned out it was, it was, it was close enough. And yeah, that, that one, I'm trying to be more, um, anyway, just a bit more like iterative, right? Like less wasted work. Cause now I'm a lot busier. Like I'm, I'm running a full business. There's like more going on where, when I wrote my previous books, I did it mostly on sabbaticals. So, you know, now I'm a little bit more precious about my time. So I'm trying to be even more rigorous about, mm. about the process. Mm. That makes um, sense. Yeah. Did that answer the question or did I get wildly yeah. off track? Yeah, it did. Oh, and, did. and then. One of the concepts I think about just on, on, on page length, especially for, for business readers, which most of mine are, they're not like the math of a novel it is hours of entertainment per dollar spent. Like this is the math applied to video games, to movies, to Netflix subscriptions, to buying novels. It's like dollars spent per hour of good entertainment. And so page count, people will buy a thicker novel if they can for the same price. Cause they're like, yeah, more entertainment, assuming both books are equally good. Um, with nonfiction for business readers is the opposite Inverse. where they're looking yeah. value received per, per hour spent. Yeah. And, and so I think a lot about value per page. I think about value per hour. I think about like, what's the reader's experience in terms of like, if you think of an hour of reading time, most of my books, they take two, three hours to read, depending on reading speed, like over those three hours, like what's the distribution of value where they're going like, wow, yeah, this is what I signed up for. This is what I wanted. I can use this in my work. And ideally you want them to have that every page or two, like every couple minutes. So they're like, yeah, this is this like steady drip of value. If you can do that, I don't think length matters that much, but the problem with padding out a business book or, or, or this type of nonfiction is you're basically slowing down the delivery of value. So that's like pretty tough. Now, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell can get away with it because he's writing novels that are disguised as business yes. books, but the, the yeah. people are buying those for entertainment. They're not buying them right. as problem solvers. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they pick up one of my books, they're buying it as a solution to the problem and, and they want that as quickly as possible. Like think yeah. about how mad you get in traffic. You're not like, yeah, I'm getting twice as much drive in for the same commute. You're, you're like, you know, or like when a web page is slow to load. You know, don't do that to your readers. Oh man, that's great. I love your metaphors. Um, we're, we're right at the tail end here. Um, so kind of lightning round with this last question. You talk about this in chapter seven and eight of the book. Um, but what's your thought process, um, big picture for selling more copies of your books and maximizing royalties and earnings um, from those books? So royalties and earnings, you really want to self-publish. Uh, so you get 60 to 70%, depending on format, uh, if you self-publish uh, uh, as your take-home, whereas with tr traditional publishers, you're like 10, 15%. So it's the difference between a dollar and $7. So the, the traditional publisher needs to sell seven times as many books, which they could do if they threw their whole marketing weight behind you. But for most authors, they don't. So they can get you some nice, like their print quality is better. Like if you really want it as like, a, you know, something that, that feels beautiful in your hand, there's some advantages to traditional publishers. But I, I, I am highly skeptical of the claim that they will sell more books for you. Uh, and, and so if you care about the book as an income stream, which I do, I'm, I'm currently my three books together do 25,000 a month in royalties, which is, you know, a bit over a quarter million a year. So it's a pretty meaningful income stream for me. And I'm doing almost no active promotion because they're, they're written as these, these back. So that is why I wrote it. I was like, I, I want to get the knowledge out, but I, I would also love a passive income stream. 
Um, and so for me, self-publishing was a, a clear path. It takes more time. I like to say it takes twice as much effort, but you can make seven times as much money. So it's like, it, it depends how hard you want to bet on yourself. Uh, and then I priced my books pretty expensive, like $20 for the paperback, $10 for the, the Kindles. And sometimes there's digital editions that are more because if the book's worth reading, like if someone's going to pay $2, they'll pay $10, at least for no this type of nonfiction. Cause again, they're like, they value their time. They value the time cost of reading much higher than the cover price. Um, for seed marketing, the four approaches I like is, uh, writing in public. So the best book on this is show your work by Austin Cleon. So basically alongside your writing, show your work in progress, show the behind the scenes, show your cutting room floor, show your research. Um, after you launch, you should set up PPC ads. Uh, they don't work for every niche, but when they work, they're super easy and super profitable. Don't overspend on them. But if you can double your money on PPC ads and sell on Amazon and sell 50, hundred copies a month, like that adds up. Um, Writing in public also leads into an author platform. So if you're going the author platform route, that's obviously very effective. It's just very time consuming. And all of the value is in the future because an author platform is slow to build. So if you're gonna stay in the same industry and keep writing, yes, absolutely, best investment you'll ever make. If you're gonna write one book and then move on to a different industry, it's probably not worth your time to build an author platform mm, just for one book, yeah, right? Good point. Um, and then I do also event giveaways and event sales. This isn't going to work for everyone, but if your book is the sort of thing that they would like to talk about at conferences, uh, in this case, you need to build trust with the event organizers ahead of time. So try to get them in as a beta reader, send the manuscripts, mm -hmm. like even if you give the books away for free, which you shouldn't do because then they don't take it seriously, you should at least charge them printing costs. Um, even if like you were giving the book away for free, there's still a massive reputational risk for them giving it to their attendees because that's like a, a tacit endorsement. So you need to build the trust with them. They need to really believe in the book and its value. Get them in there as a beta reader. Like they're like your most a late stage beta reader after you've worked out the biggest problems or like after beta reading when it's still pre-launch, just like a review copy. Um, what did I miss? PPC, writing in public and building a small author platform. Oh, and the podcast book tour. Hey, here we are. Um, when you're doing the podcast book tour, you can use there's matchmaking services like um, podmatch.com, uh, Podcast Hawk, uh, Guestio. Um, Podmatch is my favorite, or well, I'm friends with the founder, so I'm biased, but like these work really well. You want to start three months before your book's out, or even earlier if you can, because some shows have delay and you want to build hype. While you're doing the podcast interviews, what you should also be doing is have your camera turned on, even if they don't use the camera. Record the video locally. Um, you can ask for recording permissions, as I did before we recorded this, or you can get something like uh, OBS, Open Broadcasting Suite, record the video, um, clip it up, share that. That becomes your social media highlights, your content marketing, like use your own video. You can't always use the other person, but you can always use yourself. Um, mm, so get yeah. like, when you're doing this stuff, you want to try to find double value from everything you're doing, um, right? Like have it serve multiple purposes because you're busy already. Writing a book takes a ton of time and marketing's not fun. So you wanna find ways to make this seed marketing stage as efficient as possible. You don't have to do all the things I mentioned. You only need one or two. Find the ones that seem the least boring and the most mm. doable for you, right? Every That's author great. has different yeah. strengths. Every book plays in a different niche. Pick one strong option and then just crank that un until you've got your, your seed audience. And then hopefully you've got the word of mouth and it grows from there. That's great. That's awesome. And, and just throwing back in for, um, for, for people who don't know, PPC is pay-per-click. Um, so yeah. pay-per-click ad advertising either on Amazon, which I know you do well, Rob, um, or on other platforms. Uh, and Rob, to, and yeah. just as a disclaimer on the PPC, like uh, Amazon PPCs work brilliantly for one of my books and not at all for the other two. So it, yeah. it's like very hit or miss, but it's yes. worth trying because it's cheap yes. and easy to try. And yeah. if it works, crank it. And if it doesn't, no harm done. Yes. 
Definitely. <laughs> that's what, that's what we found as well. Um, Rob, this has been awesome, man. Uh, really, really great interview. Uh, where can people go to find out more about what you're up to and to get a copy of your book, write useful so, books or any of your other books? Everything's at usefulbooks.com. And basically we're trying to support indie nonfiction authors. We're, we're not like a, you know, we're not a self-publishing school like you guys are. We're not full service, but we, we have like the book itself, which is sort of a, a roadmap of our process. We've got a little authors community of a bunch of people trying to follow this iterative, data-driven, useful books process. There's currently about 250 authors in there. It's a great group. Uh, and then we've got the beta reading software um, to help run like effective, good beta reading. So all of that's at usefulbooks.com. It's like a $30 subscription and you know, you get all of it. So, you know, if you want it, and of course you can find the book anywhere, uh, that's, but usefulbooks.com, you, you can track us down there. You'll, you'll love it and we'll love to have you. <laughs> oh, awesome. Rob, this has been so great, man. First conversation, I have a feeling just as aligned uh, as we are on a lot of things. So it'll be the first of many uh, as we both ho hope to put the power back in the hands of authors, help authors succeed and help them write better books. Um, so I Absolutely. It. It's a worthy goal. There's a, you know, there's so much value, like a good book is so life-changing, right? And it's like, there's, there's a good book in everyone, but it's like got to be made in the right way for the book to succeed. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of value in it. Agreed. I appreciate you, brother. Likewise. Thanks for having me and good luck with your books, everybody. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you can be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you can be listening to, YouTube channels that you can be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode. All right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, and then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right, reviews are super important and help this podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, so number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.